When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everyone, if you like this podcast, go behind the paywall to get privileged access to the smartest minds in finance. Visit realvision.com slash rvpod and use the promo code podcast10. That's podcast10 to get 10% off our essential membership for the first year. Join the Real Vision community and learn how to become a better investor. And now to the top analysis of today's markets. What's the housing market telling us? Welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. It's Tuesday, January 31st, 2023. I'm Ash Bennington. I'm joined by Tony Greer, editor of The Morning Navigator. Tony, welcome back to the show. Ash, how are you today, man? Oh, man, I'm pretty stoked to be closing out the month with you, man. Really is. This is one of my favorite days. You know, we get to draw the lines in the sand, see how January performance was, stop time for a minute, see what's winning, see what's losing. It's the best day, one of the best days of the month. So we got some winners on the board to talk about. Yeah, you know, today, you know, just may as well get into a daily briefing, right? Today we saw, um, this morning we saw China PMI for January come out a little better than expected, you know, back up above 50. Um, today we marked the seventh daily close for the S&P above the 200-day moving average, the second weekly close above the 200-day moving average. Um, if it looks and smells like a breakout to me, I'm going to say this one is going to be a little bit of a, a breakout that can rally on. We got leadership from home builders today, yeah. just staggering four and a half percent rally um, out of XHB, which is a two sigma rally. Really cool under the hood. You know, you got names like Pulte Homes reporting 363 for the fourth quarter of last year versus 292 estimates. So, you know, nobody was expecting them to have a good quarter while rates were rising during the entire quarter. Um, and then it went and threw a nine, sig excuse me, a five sigma, nine percent rally on top of the pile today. So, you know, that that's what's driving the driving the markets really today is uh, a lot of industrial strength behind that. But we're seeing like huge individual stock moves to the upside today. Ash, I'm not shocked that they put a really ferocious close on this uh, tape today. We saw a five sigma breakout in Spotify. We saw um, home builders like NVR, DHI, Lennar, all better than two sigma breakouts. UPS and FedEx leading the transport sector, all three of those tickers with two sigma breakouts. I mean, it's tough to keep a stock market down when that kind of thing is going on, wouldn't you say? Indeed. It's important also to point out that the sigmas that you're talking about here give you a sense of relative change on it so that the percentages uh, can sometimes sound uh, to people, for example, who are looking at high beta stocks like, well, what's the big deal? The big deal is these are very big moves for these names. That's all. We want to put everything into mathematical apples and oranges. This way we understand we're a little bit better than just talking percentage here. These are some really large magnitude moves that make you sit up in your chair as a trader and see what's going on here. So. It's going to be an interesting follow through to see what happens in February, but the S&P ending the month uh, up about 6%, you know, with a really strong close, a strong close technically, sentiment's pretty negative. Everybody that I know and my aunt Connie are expecting a recession over the next several months. And that also 
that that should mean that the stock market has to go down. So we'll see what happens from here, Ash. So what does that mean, by the way, when you see that disconnect? I mean, talking about disconnect, I was just looking at housing market pricing cooling 2.5% from the June peak, looking at a Bloomberg story on that. And yet you've got this disconnect here uh, with the outperformance, the significant outperformance uh, of XHB, by the way, for those who don't know, that's the uh, Spider S&P Home Builders ETF uh, and the constituent parts that you just rallied off the top. As to me, it, it, it really speaks to positioning quite a bit. You know, with the world expecting a recession, expecting lower prices, we just came out of a massive, not just came out, I would say in the fall, we came out of a massive sentiment, negative sentiment bubble and traded up to the 200-day moving average back then. I guess that was uh, at the end of the year. So we failed a little bit into the end of the year. We backed up and we restarted a charge at the 200-day moving average in the S&P. And it feels like with all other things remaining the way they are, meaning with rates consolidating, with the curve as steeply inverted as it is, and with the dollar heading lower, which is a call that I have supreme confidence on for several reasons, um, you know, the, the market is set up to be able to trade higher here. You know, everybody thinks that the Federal Reserve is, wants to keep the animal spirits out of the market and keep the S&P at you know, at bay, but I just don't think that's the case. I think they'd rather be able to fight inflation and have the S&P hold up. That would make their lives a lot easier. So we'll see how this follows through, Ash. Tony, what do you see on the tape, by the way, ahead of the announcement tomorrow coming from the Fed? What do you see in terms of price action? What do you see in terms of volume? A lot of short covering has got to be going on, Ash. You know, when you see sectors like builders and retail that are especially interest rate sensitive, meaning if rates are going lower, we should see uh, retail and home builders go higher, but if rates are going higher, those sectors should be heading lower. I think that that may be the way people were positioned the wrong way, and that's why we're seeing the retail and home builder breakouts here. Um, I think really is just the, the theme that I get off of social media, Ash, is that everybody's super negative on the economy. And I'm totally fine with that. You know, I'm not a biologist. I'm not sure what that has to do with the markets. But if we're going to talk about what the markets are doing, we're going to talk about getting out of the gate in January in bullish fashion. We're talking about stocks that are at, you know, they may be um, technically still haven't broken out just yet, but the valuations are still cheap. There's room for them to expand. Uh, the multiples, excuse me, are still cheap, room for them to expand. And price action ruling here, you know, on the year, you know, we've got leadership We've got things like Bitcoin rallying 40% while Matt Gas is down 40%. Social media and airlines are up 18%. Semiconductors up 16% on the year. Um, you know, those are kind of animal spirity things. And it's really tough for me to get super negative on the risk complex when things like that are going on. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Bitcoin uh, up, uh, as you said, 40% uh, on the month or year to date. Same, on, obviously, the close in January. Uh, it looks like uh, whatever it is, three and a half leverage, uh, three and a half X leverage uh, NASDAQ 100. Yeah, that is a levered bet on risk assets. That is accurate for sure. Well, it certainly looks that way. By the way, let me just unpack the complex fire that you made there in terms of rates heading lower and this inverse direction uh, with home builders. Even if they are headed higher at a lower rate, uh, something that you do mentally in your head, but just to explain it to our audience, uh, obviously we've seen these 75-point hikes tapering down to 50, tapering down to 25. So that's the game that's being played in the system right now. Where do we get tomorrow? Is it 25? Is it 50? Uh, is it something else? And this idea that you have these sort of, uh, you know, this move in different direction, this deceleration of the rate of increase as 
the clouds begin to form on the horizon in terms of the economy. Fair to say, Ash. So, Tony, let's talk a little bit about WTI. Uh, interesting story there, something that you've been talking about for some time. What's the call and where are we with regard to it? The oil market likes these prices on the screen right now, Ash. That's, that's what I surmise, right? It, it likes it between the 78 and 82 level. I would say that that's where it's balanced. To me, the longer it consolidates in this range without breaking down, without the with all these fears of recession, et cetera, et cetera, the longer that it has uh, a chance to rally coming out of here, right? We're still in that scenario where inventories are low, but we've had spreads come all the way back to levels where they're only slightly backwardated. Um, the market's balanced quite a bit. The driving force in the equity in the energy market is really the crack spreads and the margin that the refiners are earning now. We just saw ExxonMobil um, put up a pretty good quarter. Um, they're all doing huge stock buybacks and I think an effort to maybe gain some attention from the administration and say, you know, you guys can do what you want. We're gonna buy our own stock back in terms of new investment and kind of wait for the next election. So I think that dynamic is gonna be interesting to see how that plays out this year. But, um, in general, we're seeing you know strong commodities underneath the hood. We're seeing a good rally in gold this year. Str uh, strength out of uranium, industrial miners, all up double-digit percentages to get out of the gate in January. I mean, I can't figure out what there is to be negative about this market, Ash, unless you want to call the market the economy. <laughs> a very good point, Tony. Uh, listen, let me ask you this. You said 78 to 82 is the natural range where you see supply and demand balance in WTI. What are some other key price levels where you think you might see things overbought or oversold as you look at the screen and sort of figure out your placements? I did segue away from the WTI question there. So we, we've got balance at these levels. We've got the crack spread driving, um, driving strength in energy. Both um, curves, WTI and Brent remain backwardated, just not as steep as they were maybe six months ago when oil was at its highs. But it's just a matter of time, Ash, with low open interest, very little speculative interest in the oil market right now. Like, I don't think it has any large long position in the markets that's going to, you know, cause it to come apart with a liquidation of that. Similarly, I don't think there's any huge short positions out there as is evidenced by open interest in a steady downtrend and a lot of people really just exiting the market. So it's hard to uh, get negative on the crude oil markets from here. You know, if there's gonna be incrementally less SPR selling, which we identified as being the main seller last year, I can't imagine how prices don't go higher. If we do run into an economic slowdown globally, you know that, or even just in the US, you know that OPEC is gonna respond with an output cut and, you know, we'll work on it from there. But it seems like this price is probably equilibrium. It probably has risk to the upside and limited risk to the downside. So I'm going to stick with my guns and say just because the calendar turned, that doesn't mean that natural resources stocks aren't going to continue to outperform tech stocks, even though there's some really attractive tech breakouts happening on the screen today and names like Spotify, et cetera, et cetera. We're going to take a quick break and be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.
Yeah, crack spread, of course, is the spread between the underlying value of the crude uh, and the petroleum refined products and distillates that come out of it. I want to touch a little bit on the backwardation of the curve. Talk a little bit about why you see the price of the uh, spot market being higher than future trading price right now. Uh, that, Ash, that's generally um, a function of sort of people that consume oil want to pay the price that's last price on the screen now and not worry about it as much in the future. Um, it has to do when there's limited supply, people are paying up to get their inventory in the, on the books now rather than waiting for it to pay for it later when it might not be there. So that's generally when you have front month driving the structure and it's just not a very powerful drive right now because the calendar spread has come in from, say, a $14 backward-dated spread to a $4 backward-dated spread. So you can see how those premiums have really shrunk and come back towards historical ranges. And if that's the case now, that's why I give the sense that the oil market is pretty balanced here. So if spreads have come back to flat, maybe 20 to 50 cents backward-dated per month, and the crack spread remains elevated at 30 or $40, then it seems to me like the conditions for crude oil are to remain at these prices or flutter slightly higher from here, unless there's a real, real demand destruction, which the IEA continues to tell us isn't there. So I can still remain positive. The commodity, the longer it stays alive down here, the, the better a chance it has of igniting a real serious rally later in the year. So I'm good with however this goes, Ash. Speaking of commodities and rallies, uh, let's talk a little bit about gold. We talked about this last time I was here on my screen right now, trading at 1928 uh, Tony, what do you see uh, in terms of gold price? What do you think is the driver uh, and how are you positioned? Pretty awesome price action today, Ash, in the last eight of month. It traded from 1920 down to 1900 tested that psychological support level, and then came roaring back to close at 19 and a quarter. So to me, it looks like, you know, maybe there was some profit taking into month end and somebody that's long gold as a position decided to buy some into month end. And next thing you know, gold is up 6% on the month off to a really good start. I think it has to do with the dollar being weaker. I think it has to do with rates backing off the highs. Um, we are trading uh, the metals and mining breakout. Uh, we, we're long gold on my, on my view matrix for the Navigator, my newsletter. Um, and we're also trading the industrial miners breakout, which are loaded with gold miners. Um, so we're kind of a little bit ahead of this move, only having gotten into it a couple of weeks ago when those technical triggers went off for me. But, you know, after having, you know, a pretty negative year last year, seven months in negative territory in a row we saw last year, it looks like gold found a bottom and is probably getting back on its feet. Maybe it's coming to its senses um, with the idea that inflation is going to stay with us for longer and maybe has a better year of performance this year than last year. Hey, speaking of the rate of rates and the dollar and other broader macroeconomic indicators, since we touched on housing earlier in this conversation, I also wanted to take a look at a conversation with Jamie McDonald that's out on Real Vision today talking about the broader housing market. Let's take a look at the clip. And then we have the final piece of the puzzle, ratings agencies. You see, all along the way, from origination to repackaging, that loan becomes less about the person who borrowed and more about a number or a rating. Loans with low loan-to-value ratios backed by housing in high-demand areas and borrowers of impeccable credit worthiness, well, they're given an A by rating agencies. They are called prime mortgages. However, those loans with a very high loan-to-value ratio in low-demand areas and from people with little to no credit score well, they are given investment grades down in the C's and D's. 
These are called subprime mortgages. The thing is, what happened just prior to 2008 is that too many people started to make too much money and aggregators got better at packaging these loans and getting rating agencies to still give them an A rating. And here we introduce products that you probably haven't heard in a while, but they were the cards that brought the whole house tumbling down. CDOs, collateralized debt obligations. And this is where ratings agencies really played their part in the collapse. Certain investors, whether they be banks or pension funds, had remits and limits as to what they could buy. But ratings agencies were awarding high ratings to CDO bundles that included subprime loans. The reason being basically that there was good credit in there and well, house prices were just never gonna go down. So why should we care? Well, you do care when house prices go down and the mortgages are subprime because that end borrower is incentivized to walk away. Remember negative equity from the last episode? Well, there it is in action. Welcome back. Uh, Tony, lots we were just talking about over the break there. I wanted to just jump in because we got a lot of really interesting questions coming to us from our viewers, as always, when we do this show together. Uh, this is an interesting question. It actually ties into something that Andreas Steno Larson had sent us uh, earlier in the day. I don't know if we have the chart. It's about uh, fund of, of flow, flow of funds into the queues uh, and the short queues. The, the question comes to us from James Learman from the Rivers and website. Tony, uh, what do you think about going long, precious metal, and short the cues. Well, that's essentially a form of the great rotation, which I've been bullish um, for over a year now. You know, that has uh, been one of the premises that I tried to stay bullish all of last year, and I remain bullish this year. And I labeled the great rotation as literally the Bloomberg Commodities Index divided by the NASDAQ. Or I think I used the triple Q price, to be honest with you. But that ratio is something that I remain positive and I think is going to have a massive flip into uh, positive territory. Well, it's in positive territory, but I think it's going to continue much, much higher. So I do think that you're looking in the right direction. Um, you know, I guess all the risk to that trade is, you know, interest rates backing way off and inflation coming down permanently um, to a level where yields can back off, you know, once again permanently. And while I don't see that happening, I am, I'm happy to stay in this trade. It feels like also right now that the tech stocks have a lot of room to retrace on the upside. So that's going to be, you know, maybe you pick a spot and leg into it carefully. But I think you're hunting down the right direction when it comes down to what's really going to perform by the time this year is over. I still think we're set up to see natural resources outperform technology by a fairly wide margin this year. So you're expressing another version of that should work pretty well. Let me take up a little more specifically the other leg of the trade, which is nat gas, because I think we've got at least three questions here in the questions about natural gas. Any thoughts about natural gas uh, more broadly or more deeply, uh, other than it as a sort of a proxy for the natural resources play? Well, it's also, um, you know, natural gas is going through a very serious episode right now, you know, both in Europe and here in the U.S., um, you know, we, we saw what happened last winter with European electric prices. They traded up to 300 euro per megawatt hour. That was due to uh, the Dutch TTF natural gas price trading the equivalent of essentially 50, 60 dollars here. Right. So um, 
that situation righted itself when Europe spent a fortune filling up their storage with natural gas at, at $7 per million BTU um, or at the highs of 50, 60 euro um, per BCF, I guess it is. But my point is we're coming out of that crisis where we were let out of the crisis by warm weather and the fact that the authorities threw half a trillion dollars at it, right? They needed that, they needed stimulus, they needed the whole thing. So now, since we're on this side of the coin where we're having warmer weather than usual, like by 10 degrees seasonally, which is unbelievably much warmer than expected, we've got that gas tumbling down through $3 towards the historic ranges of, you know, one and a half bid to two and a half dollars, right? This is where the natural gas price trades when we're allowed to drill in the shale and the Permian and things like that. And we're allowed to have a sensible energy policy. So when we go from having sensible energy policy to policy to not having sensible energy policy, we get spikes in natural gas up to $10 like we saw this year. So we're back into historic support levels. I would imagine that we're going to once again at some point be susceptible to cold weather and to normal um, winter conditions. But right now, until things change, the price is on its way down. I wouldn't imagine that it stops at any level until the weather gets cooler. I mean, yeah, weather actually gets cooler toward normal winter temperatures. And I think that that's one of the few things that's really going on in the markets right now. If we can't ship it overseas um, with LNG yet as efficiently as we'd like to, this is the market that we're stuck with. Yeah, lots of buzz on Media Cycle yesterday about the fact that we haven't gotten any snow uh, in New York yet. And we're about to close out the month of January. I miss the snow, man. I like the snow. I'm fine without it, Ash. If I don't have to shovel, it's a good winter for me. That's why you live in an apartment, man. Nobody has to do that. You got uh... good point. I'm too claustrophobic for an apartment. <laughs> We're going to take another quick break and be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. Hey, Tony, I got questions uh, about uh, uranium and coal uh, coming to us from uh, a number of viewers. Trillion X uh, looks like uh, AA21. A couple of people are asking questions about uranium and coal talking about energy while we're on this subject. Bullish, bullish, both of them. You know, the, the more we continue to force ESG and carbon neutral on the tape, the probably the more we're going to have to, you know, at some point resort to resort to coal and uranium. Um, you know, in Germany, they've done a full 180 now, and they're literally leveling, leveling towns to access the dirtiest types of coal that there are. Right. So they've, they've come full circle from understanding that, you know, this is going to be a dirty power source to we absolutely need this dirty power source so that we don't freeze because the intermittent power of wind and solar just isn't going to be enough to heat a whole entire country for the wintertime. So, um, you know, the price of coal is on a steep uptrend that the producers are in great shape and probably likely to stay in that way. Um, the uranium price is going to be another alternative to, you know, any failures in ESG and sort of tightening of the of the energy spigot. And I think that, you know, the more and more we open ourselves up to the idea of using nuclear energy for baseload power, 
the better that sector is going to do. You know, there's still a lot of small energy, um, nuclear energy projects that are going on now that aren't getting a lot of attention. But I think that the industry is expanding, is going to have to continue to expand as long as we're pushing the uh, net zero plan. I really do. Yeah, that question and others uh, coming from uh, Samuel Shah and others on uh, that point. Boy, you want to talk about irony. I believe uh, that in uh, in the year 2021, uh, Germany closed down three nuclear power plants. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, they're they're doing um, making decisions based on platitudes and finding out that they aren't working and, you know, back to the alternatives. Right. So we'll see how that pans out in Germany. We'll see how it pans out here. But luckily, we aren't under as much pressure as they are, nor are we beholden to Vladimir Putin for our natural gas. So we're in a much more advantageous situation. Yeah. So moving from energy to the soft commodities, question from Ralph Humphrey on the Real Vision website uh, asking, Tony, if you're still following coffee right now. No, I really don't follow coffee at all. I don't drink coffee and I haven't been trading it. Um, I feel like the opportunities are just too robust in the energy space right now. And I'm really, really myopic in the markets between energy and metals. That's about all I got time and room for. I have to say, I am shocked that you don't drink coffee. You seem yeah. like a coffee guy. Red Bull for me only, Ash. <laughs> uh, here's, a, here's a question. Uh, actually, here's a comment from uh, Douglas Smiley. Tony has the best man cave of the YouTube macro guys. I, I think I agree. That I do, and you can't even see my guitars or my brand new record player, which I just got, which is the best addition to the man cave of all time. Fantastic. Uh, by the way, talking about the uh, the uh, Real Vision macro guys, question here from a guy named Thomas Thornton. Actually, it's just a comment, I guess. Uh, home builders' orders rates and cancellation rates are down 30 to 40%. Hi, guys. Uh, any thoughts on the cancellation rates down 30 to 40%? No, I'm like, I'm not a biologist. Um, Tommy can call me on the outside and we can discuss that number if he likes. Um, I think that, you know, where, when you get earnings like we just saw out of Pulte Homes and Lennar, I mean, it doesn't, uh, I, I don't know how you can argue with the price action. I'd love to hear from Tom if they're overdone and he sees some DMARC 13s and there's a chance that we can short this sector because I do think that rates are going to go higher. And at some point, that's got to be somewhat of a struggle for home builders. Good thing I don't have that position on going into today, though. Yeah, so now if I was Larry King, this is the point where I'd be like, Tommy Thornton from Connecticut, you're on the air. <laughs> that would be great. Oh, man. Why don't we institute that to the show, Ash? <laughs> that would be fantastic. Uh, Tony, I always chuckle whenever you say I'm not a biologist. Uh, for people who are new to thinking about the world in the distinction between the way traders, economists, and analysts see it, talk a little bit about what you mean by that statement. So obviously I'm ripping off a quote that um, I guess uh, a candidate for the Supreme Court, um, you know, said in front of Congress where she was asked if she could define a female and she said she wasn't a biologist so that she couldn't define what a female was. So I kind of just ripped that off. And when people ask me questions about the economy, I make a joke out of it and say that I'm not a biologist rather than saying I'm not an economist. So, you know, like if, if you want to ask if you, if you want to talk about the economy, that's one thing. If you want to talk about trading markets, that's another thing entirely. And I think this home builder lesson today is exactly part and parcel of that. Whereas if you would have told me that um, during the fourth quarter, while rates were rising, that an Atlanta home builder was going to rally 50% in price, I would have thought that you were crazy. And then if you were told me that they would have reported a monster quarter during that quarter while rates were exploding, 
and that they were going to blow out earnings and tack another 10% rally on top of the 50% rally that they just put on, I would have said, well, then I quit. Because what am I doing playing this game, betting against these companies with rising rates, and here they are kicking the crap out of earnings and the stocks are exploding. So to me, that's just a really clear difference of the difference between you know economics and trading markets where yeah. there doesn't have to be a naturally, you know, sensible way that you know sensible thing that drives stocks right? right sometimes what could be driving stocks is that people are too negative in stocks right like my man jawad Mian always says if you bearish the united states buy the s p right so those are kind of the little lessons there that that really delineate what the real world is versus what the trading world is and if you want to live in the trading world then speak in trade terms of the trading world and we'll all be a lot better for it yeah, and by the way, if anybody doesn't get the joke, I'm an economist, I'm not a biologist, uh, go take a look at the S&P chart from uh, March of 2020 up to uh, New Year's Eve uh, of 2021, uh, and then look at the GDP prints that we got during that devastating COVID period and take a look at what was happening over at Central Bank uh, activity. Exactly. That was another example, uh, Ash. We had a name for that. We call that financial postmodernism. <laughs> that, that was where we were coming out with disastrous employment data, disastrous GDP data, and the S&P was only rifling higher. Why? Because they had already sold it and the problem was being addressed. So the wrong prices were on the screen and they had nothing to do with the fact that the economy was putting up weak numbers, right? So that's the, that's the dichotomy right there. Yeah, and Tony, that's exactly why we have you on the show, to talk about the Trader's View, to talk about the tape, to talk about prices. Uh, and nobody does it better than you. As we get to the end of this conversation, final thoughts, key takeaways that you'd like to leave our audience with. Yeah, uh, I mean, I got to come out starting gate of January, pretty bullish the S&P. You know, I, I feel like those seven daily closes above the 200 day, we had another red to green day today. You know, in terms of a market that's making all the right moves, to set itself up for a continuation of this rally. You can't argue with the observations you can make about the S&P right now, right? It's being led by, you know, some of the home builder sector today. It's being led on the year by airlines and social media and natural resources are way down in the pack, but still set up for success. Um, some of the only sectors that are down in January are really defensive sectors like consumer staples, healthcare, um, utilities, you know, to me, this is just shaping up to be um, at least a, a positive first quarter of the year for stocks. And that's the way I'm looking at it, Ash. You know, I can't look much farther past that. But if I think that this is a sustainable rally, I have to make sure that my clients are involved. And luckily, we've got about eight or nine longs on the pad and only one short on the pad right now. And that's the way the market's telling me to go. So that's which way I'm going right now. Hey, speaking of shirts, I just see Tommy Thornton's weighed back in. LOL, sell him, sell him, call me. <laughs> Tommy and I are always opposite ways lately. It drives me crazy, but we can both make money in this market. We can both make money, that's for sure. So like I've been sticking with, yeah. um, the one saying that's been carrying me through is the post-it that's on my desk that says nothing is linear, right? We've got the curve that's buried minus 75 basis points. It lends itself to economic disasters coming out on the tape. Um, it lends itself to waterfalls and equities and waterfalls in the bond market. And it's just really treacherous to trade. So if you remember that nothing is linear, you remember to take profits on your winners. You remember to be disciplined with your losers and you kind of sharpen your trading sword a little bit more than you would in a more relaxed year. So that's the way I'm playing it, Ash. 
And another thing that you described brilliantly, of course, is thinking along different time horizons. For sure. For sure. You know, we do one step at a time and, and work ourselves backwards in time frame. But I guess it's helpful to have a little bit of a view going out a few weeks at a time. Yeah, Tony, always a pleasure to have the trader talk with you, man. It is the best, Ash. Thanks for hosting, man. Always do a great job. Thanks again for watching Real Vision Daily Briefing. Tomorrow, we'll be back with Darius Dale. See you then. What's up, revolutionaries? Thanks for tuning in to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. For more content like this, head over to realvision.com and get unfiltered access to the very best, brightest, and biggest names in finance. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.